This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host nurse practitioner, Mimi Secor. Let's face it, Americans are fatter than ever before in our nation's history, with over 30% of the population earning the dubious label of obese, with the greatest weight gain among our youth. Why the startling rise in obesity and diabetes over the past 20 to 30 years, and what can we do about it? The answers may surprise you. With me today is nurse practitioner Christine Kessler, certified in advanced diabetes management and practicing in Washington, D.C., and we're discussing the national epidemic of obesity. Hello, Christine. Welcome to ReachMD. Hello there. So can you describe with us, Christine, the current obesity epidemic in the U.S. and why it's so alarming? You know, it's stunning to realize that obesity has more than doubled within the last 30 years, and most of the surge was in the 80s and 90s. It's leveling off a little bit now, but we are stuck with nearly 34% of adults now considered obese. That's a BMI of over 30. Now, more concerning is that obesity has tripled in children, particularly adolescents, which now hover around 17% obese. Add to that 68% of adults and nearly a third of children are considered at least overweight. That's a BMI of over 20 And it's not just about increased belt size. Obesity is an inflammatory disease. It's associated with lots of comorbidities that we know about, such as diabetes, which has risen tandem with obesity, but dyslipidemia, hypertension, coronary artery disease. In fact, Mimi, it triples the risk of MIs, especially in women. There's gastrointestinal disease, cancers, and even mild early dementia. Now, this translates into increased Healthcare costs estimated to be over $147 billion in this country. And this has been noticed by many on Capitol Hill and is why childhood obesity is the focus of the current administration. Why are we seeing this startling rise in the past 20 to 30 years, and what's the explanation for this? You know, we don't know. I mean, there's a lot of thoughts and theories, but some of the things that are emerging and some of the answers are surprising. And how we deal with this problem may lie in our emerging understanding of the new links that we're finding between the biochemical language of fat, the new enteroendocrine system, and the brain satiety centers that respond to food consumptions in a variety of ways. Chris, we're going to go into each one of those links in more detail, but what I'm wondering is many claim that the cause of obesity is simply a matter of overeating. Is it really so simple? Well, the bottom line is that we do have an energy problem, and there's more energy and calories consumed by us than we actually expend as first calories and energy, but something has changed over the past several decades. Now, we're not sure what it is, but it seems to be a combination of changes in our food supply, which I think is a big one, genetics, impaired calorie absorption and metabolism, and altered satiety signaling. Now, first, the most obvious is that we're we're eating more. Our portion size are bigger. I heard recently that regular Coke purchased in the 60s, a medium size, was 79 calories. Now it's 194 calories. And our hamburgers are up to three times bigger than they used to be. And we eat out more. And there's also concerns, and this is the big one, there's also concerns about the role of food additives and the role they play. And these are those chemicals whose names you can't pronounce to enhance taste and shelf life. Genetics plays a role. If your mother is obese, your risk for obesity is 75% greater. And if you have a same-sex sibling, that's 40% increase. And there's some genes, one in particular, the Luke 27 gene, that if you have it, if you eat a meal that's 49% greater content of carbohydrates, you're going to absorb three times the calorie load. 
Others propose that the genetic obesity switch is turned on by an adenovirus infection, and others believe that obesity can be predisposed by changes of the bacterial colonies in our gut, which makes us extract more calories from our food. So there's many, many links to the obesity epidemic that we're seeing. We haven't pinned them all down, but it's going to be multiple. Recent research has shown that not all fat is created equal. What are the types of fat and how do they differ, Chris? Well, I'm not going to say a whole lot about fat or brown fat or brown adipose because histologically it looks more like muscle than fat, and it's very metabolically active. And it appears it plays a bigger role in neonates and infants with regard to temperature regulation and thermogenesis. Sadly, it disappears as we get older. It's the white adipose tissue. Now, these are large lipid storage depots that are found in the viscera and subcutaneous regions of the body. Please understand that adipose tissue is a very active endocrine gland. It releases dozens of biochemical mediators called cytoadipokines. It is the adipose tissue that has the most pathological impact, and it is found predominantly in the omentum, and you see it in and between organs such as the liver, the heart, and the kidneys. The subcutaneous adipose, however, is located um, all over the body predominantly depositing on the abdomen and in the thighs and the buttocks. It is the thigh and buttock sub-Q adipose that is considered benign. Abdominal sub-Q fat, however, while more benign than visceral fat, has a very interesting dialogue with visceral fat and releases some substances that may relate to satiety and, and inflammation. So why is it that abdominal adiposity, Christine, is so concerning and potentially lethal? Because abdominal and central adiposity is uh, mostly associated with visceral adipose. And it is visceral adipose which actually releases much more pro-inflammatory and pro-thrombotic adipokines. Now, these are associated with greater CV risk. Now, one thing I want to make clear, just because you have a patient with obesity or you yourself is struggling with obesity does not mean that you have a lot of visceral fat. I have a patient with a BMI of 54 and diabetes for which I'm treating him, but he has no hypertension, no dyslipidemia, no pain, and an abdominal CT found no visceral fat. He had mostly subcutaneous fat. Conversely, I have patients who have normal BMIs who have very diffuse fatty livers. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and I'm speaking today with nurse practitioner Christine Kessler, certified in advanced diabetes management and practicing in Washington, D.C., and we're discussing the national epidemic of obesity and what advanced practice clinicians can do about it. So, Christine, what are we learning about the language of adipose tissue? Well, we're learning that we have very chatty fat. Now, we have many adipokines are released, but what's interesting is that a number of them are familiar pro-inflammatory cytokines, that is tumor necrosis factor, interleukin-6, and an interesting one called resistance, as well as pro-thrombotic agents like tissue factor and plasminogen activating inhibitor. Now, these, when you look at pro-inflammatory pro-clotting, you can see the connection to cardiovascular disease. There's also growth factors, precursor steroids, why you see that buffalo hump and the cushionoid appearance for some patients, angiotensinogen, the association to hypertension, leptin, and many, many adipokines that promote insulin resistance. Why does it become such a problem as we get older? I wish it didn't become a problem, but it is. We have a lot of these comorbidities and these risks as we get older. What makes it interesting, and we don't understand why this is so, uh, is the intriguing, what I call, menopausal movement of fat 
that shifts from the back, from the buttocks to the abdomen. We do not know the reason for that, but it's not all positive. We don't know, but we know that just with age, we get a lot of comorbidities, and adding to that a pro-inflammatory state of obesity, you're going to have greater detrimental outcomes. So in terms of weight gain, Christine, does what you eat matter more than when you eat? Well, believe it or not, when you eat may have the greatest impact. Uh, You know, there's been research that has found that eating most of your calories earlier in the day allows you to more efficiently metabolize your food. And we've known this for some time. For instance, we know you process alcohol different in the morning than the evening. You can drink three times as much alcohol with less inebriation. We know fat is absorbed and metabolized differently when eaten in the morning, in the afternoon versus at night. And this may be why there's less obesity seen in some Western European countries where they often eat large lunches and small difference, quite the opposite of what we see in this country. Increasing our satiety appears to be one of the goals of weight management. What actually triggers satiety or the feeling of fullness, and how does this relate to our new understanding of gastrointestinal signaling to the brain, Christine? Well, this is the big area of research. Satiety is what I refer to as the holy grail of weight loss management. And there's a lot of research going on. It has been progressing rapidly since the relatively recent discovery of incretins, chief among them the glucose-like peptide or GLP-1 that plays a big role in type 2 diabetes. And we've also discovered that there's new roles for old gut hormones, and we've also found new gut hormones. And so uh, that's why you're starting to see the whole thing called the enteroendocrine system. Now, for instance, we know that sensory stimuli, such as smelling baked bread, can cause the stomach to release a potent hunger hormone called ghrelin. There's also a potent satiety agent, just the opposite, that's actually released from adipose tissue called leptin. Curiously, though, people with adiposity or obesity have what's called a leptin resistance, and they actually have very high circulating levels of leptin. And get this, high circulating levels of leptin is associated with cancer and pain that we see with adiposity. Now, when food enters the small intestine, it signals different things from the gut, and it varies depending upon what the food is composed of. In response to fat and protein, CCK, cholecystokinin, which we've known for many years, is released to cause gallbladder to contract. But did you know that it actually goes to the hypothalamic region and promotes satiety? Now, if instead of fat and protein, what you get is carbohydrates that goes into the small intestine, something different happens. A substance called glucose-dependent insulotropic peptide, which I just say GIP, is released with totally different effects. It goes to the brain, attenuates satiety, and not only that, makes you absorb more calorie from the gut and puts it into storage as fat. There's a lot of other hormones we're looking at the gut. Chief among them is GLP-1 that signals satiety as well as other things like insulin release and hepatic glucose reduction. But there's also another one called PYY. And I mentioned this. PYY is a focus of great intense interest, and that is a potent gut hormone for satiety, among other things. And as part of a collection of hormones, we refer to as the ileal break. There are also... In terms of the brain, two different regions in a brain affecting satiety, we call the fore and the hind brain, and they're signaled differently. And they talk to each other, the gut talks to them, fat talks to them. For instance, did you know that stimulation of the dopamine receptors in the forebrain we now believe is associated with the food addictions that many of our patients or people in the society have? 
So, Christine, how does this translate to more effective weight loss strategies, this new understanding you're describing? If we understand the language of food acquisition, signaling, metabolism, calorie storage, and satiety, then we can develop pharmacological interventions that can augment or ablate some of these signals. You know, if we understand what the body is saying, we can tell the body to speak up or shut up. And what it's going to be is going to be multifactorial pharmacological approach as well as a behavioral approach. And there's a lot of exciting things on the way. And it's going to encompass a lot of these gut hormones, several of them, together to work on different things. And also, we're going to look at how we sequence how we eat and what we eat. It's going to have a big impact. So give us some pearls, some practical strategies for counseling our patients that are struggling with obesity, Chris. You bet. There's no one size fits all. I'm going to tell you a few little snippets I might share with different patients based on what I've come to learn about them. First of all, honesty and empathy. We're worried about cardiovascular sequelae of these patients, so we want to decrease their cardiac risk. To do there, they just need to lose 5 to 7% of their body weight. We're not looking at bikinis or thongs. We're looking at losing 5 to 7% of body weight. All diets can work. You just need to stick with it which is hard to do, and I let patients know there will be a plateau that will be reached within 30 weeks. I call it metabolic pushback. Don't stop. Keep doing it. And understand men lose weight faster, sadly, but they do. But just keep doing it. Make food diaries because we do a lot of mindless eating to find out where we're sneaking in food without being aware. I start off with little steps. The best diet, Mimi, is actually cutting portions, hard to do. And what some patients I will do is say, hey, if you got a, you like those mashed potatoes, take a big tablespoon and throw it out before you eat it. Or take some of those fries, throw them out before you eat. Little by little, realistic goals, small, frequent meals. Cut out going, eating out so much. You can't get out of a restaurant with less than 1,000 calories. Moving towards vegetarians. Eating around a plate. This is a good one. It shoots the signaling. Eat around the plate. Eat protein and fats first, then carbs to signal CCK. Eat your biggest meal before 4 p.m. Don't drink something while you're eating or before drink after you eat. That's an American thing. And I tell the patients, this is a big one, slow down when eating. Count to 15 between bites or even cut caloric intake by 100 calories. There's a lot of little things you can do, but uh, one thing I end with, I say, be cautious of over-the-counter diet aids as most of them are stimulants and nutrient blockers. And I generally don't recommend them unless they are discussed with their medical provider. Well, thank you very much, Christine. It's been a great pleasure talking with you and good luck with your important work. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.